this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track. But there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. Okay, quick pop quiz. Someone comes along and offers you an eight-figure deal to buy your business. Do you have the courage to walk away when things go south? That's exactly what my next guest, Wes Winham, did when the negotiation around his earnout started to fall apart. In this episode, you're going to hear the story of Policy Set, how they built it, how they ultimately garnered multiple offers for the business, how the first offer fell apart, and how Wes was able to resuscitate some other offers and bring it back around, selling the company for close to four times top line annual revenue. Fantastic exit, which Wes will tell you all about in this episode of Built to Sell Radio. Here's Wes Winham. Wes Winham, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. So tell me about this company, Policy Stat. You guys were involved in working with hospitals to help them sort of formalize their processes. Is that right? Yeah. Think of it as uh, a hospital is a complex organization. They do really important stuff. And when they make mistakes, it matters for lives. So yeah. they have a playbook. Playbook's really important. It's how do you triage the emergency room? How do you dose heparin? And like, what's your dress code policy? So all that mixed together uh, because they're so important, they're regulated. So it's both a quality problem of like, how do we do it right? And regulation, how do we prove that the right people are seeing these policies? They're searchable, we're proving them, we're signing them. Uh, and the, the old way was just a bunch of binders, a bunch of paper on a shelf somewhere. Uh, we took it online, made it easy to search, find, keep up with all the signatures, just that kind of thing. Got it. So, so if I'm a hospital administrator and I want to, I want to be able to prove that all my nurses have signed the, the doc, read and 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 assigned the document about the the way you administer an IV or the what the dress code is or the hand cleaning procedure in the surgical room. I mean, all that stuff is is documented, and they have to sign where appropriate to. So there's a sort of paper trail, I guess. You got it. Oh, and if your health network. You've probably acquired three different hospital systems and these little clinics that all had different policies and you need to figure out how your like system policies interact with the local policies, which interact with the regional policies, which oh, are wow. per state. Um, so there's a lot of complexity that is hidden. Uh, so that's why we ended up being in uh, 20% of the hospitals around the country because we were just a little bit better at that, especially that uh, problem with multiple levels of hierarchy and how you work those things together. Right, because it sounds easy enough to throw up a Google Doc and, and kind of be done with it. But, but you rightly have pointed out so many of the complexities and interconnectedness that need to be sort of addressed. Uh, it's, uh, it's always, I love these like 
small problems from outsiders that in, it, they're fractal when you get closer to them, like people inside of them, they're, they're deep. There's a lots of complexity. I think it's, uh, it's a great success of uh, our country that people can build these little intricate businesses that end up being uh, pretty big to help people with things that most of us just don't have to worry about. Yeah, for sure. What was the billing model? Like, how did you bill customers for this software? Uh, annual contracts. So these are mostly uh, mid-market e-enterprise, fairly slow moving organizations. It's, uh, I, I hear government is worse than healthcare to sell into, but it's, it's pretty slow. So annual contracts, the nice thing about those annual contracts is folks renew. Uh, if you totally don't screw it up, they, they stick around. So we were able to get 99.9% renewal rate, which is, is nice for your business. Wow, that's unheard of. That's per month or per year? Per year. Wow, that's unbelievable. It's like once they, when they sign up, they never leave. They, if they go out of business, they leave. Uh, sometimes if they're acquired, they leave. But other than that, I think it was like on, on one hand, I could count the number of folks that signed up. And then what left. made it so sticky? I think there's like two, two kind of levers for stickiness. Um, one is just organizational. There's some types of organizations that's like don't change fast. And I think we had that at our, our back. The other one is uh, how, much, how much work it takes to get up and running. So if you're loading all of your policies and all of your data and all of your workflows, uh, just thinking about uh, doing like we, we didn't lock people in. We let people take their data, but just the idea of going through that work again, you're going to have to be a pretty crummy product uh, <laughs> for someone to be excited about going and doing that other thing. It's like switching banks. It's like the worst nightmare of my life. You know, like, no, don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> which, which leads me to believe that it must've been a really long sales cycle. Like how did you sell this stuff? Cause as hard as it is for people to leave as sticky, the product is, means that whatever they're doing right now would have been hard to dislodge them from. Totally. Uh, we're long sales cycles. Uh, I don't know what it is. I haven't been with the company for three years. So this is all like, you know, uh, old news, but it's six to six to 12 months. Some of the bigger networks, it were, there were, there were two and three year sales cycles where we would maybe get a, a tiny corner of the, of the, the network and then kind of expand there. Like one of our deals was, was like a deal from the conversation. So it's, it's a long process. How did you incentivize salespeople? Uh, we had a percentage of first year revenue was kind of our, our quota. So they had annual or quarterly quotas um, and then uh, commissions on top of first year booked revenue. Got it. Got like it. A, a kicker for longer contracts as well. And would they, were they working on the phone or did they, they kind of physically call on hospitals? We had an inside sales model and it worked pretty well. It was, uh, I think it was a little unusual in 2008 or 2009, uh, but it's, it's increasingly less unusual, more normal. Mm -hmm. uh, we were able to close fairly big deals uh, over the phone, over video calls. And then for some of the, the biggest deals, we would, we would fly out, but a lot less than you would think. How big did you get this company before you guys decided to sell? How much revenue did you have? That kind of That's a roughly uh, 5 million ARR, let's say. AR stands for annual recurring revenue. So that was the sort of nut. And what was it that triggered you to want to sell? Like what, why, why sell? It sounds like a, this cash cow that would go on forever. So we raised uh, money from investors 
And about 10 years in, folks start asking for liquidity or they, they at least want to see some movement. Uh, we went out to raise venture capital again. Uh, we had typically raised, we had raised from mostly angel investors and we got feedback from the market that we weren't growing fast enough at that point. So we're, we're based in uh, the Midwest and we were, we were pretty proud and I still am proud of our capital efficiency, like not late raising a lot of money and getting to a high ARR. Uh, one thing I learned there is that growth rate is all that venture capitalists care about. Not, not all. What was your growth rate at this time? Uh, it was south of 50% at that point. Below five zero. Yeah, we were so you 40%-ish, uh, I believe. I, I can't remember exactly, but still good growth rate by any measure, but not, uh, you really need to be north of 100%, ideally closer to 200%. Uh, to, to attract a venture capitalist. Yeah. So just to be clear, you started in 2007, you sold in 2017. So this is kind of circa late 2016, early 17. That That's we're, right. We're talking about. So it's a 10 year run, ultimately culminating at, at 5 million in annual recurring revenue. You go to the bankers and they say, the venture capitalists, and they say, it's not big enough. It's not growing quickly enough for us. Yep. Got it. The investors that you went to, how much of the company did you have to give up to fund the growth of it? You said it was capitally efficient. How capital efficient was it? I actually don't know that number, but what the total, I, I, I must have seen the cap table at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a minority of the company. Um, and it was definitely, uh, you know, the, it was more expensive earlier than it was later, but I'm, I'm not actually sure. What did you do multiple rounds? We did two rounds effectively. So kind of friends and family, mostly doctors and folks that were really familiar with the problem. They were like, oh man, this sucks. Yeah, <laughs> where do I sign? Exactly. Uh, and then once we had some growth and some uh, traction, we raised from a group of uh, angel investors who are mostly folks who had run companies. So they're, they're pretty sophisticated. Um, so those two rounds and also... Part of that round was there's a group in Indiana called the IEDC and they do venture investing for companies based in Indiana. It's, it's a really cool program. They hmm. uh, should copy it. They, for a while, they were the uh, most active uh, pre-seed and seed stage investor in the country. Um, it hmm. really is a, is a great boost for Indiana businesses. That's really cool. So you get the message from the VCs that we're, you're just not growing fast enough to attract our attention. So what did you do next? Uh, so then it is, uh, do we want to uh, try to reach liquidity or do we want to make the, the decision to not to do that? Uh, and were you at this time sort of interrupt, Wes, were you, were you dividing out the shareholders, the, the, the folks who had invested in the company, or were you pouring everything back into growing it? Just give me a sense of was that was, was just kind of continue to carve off the dividends an option. Yeah, no, no, uh, no dividends. Uh, the kind of tax treatment of that is, is generally uh, unfavorable. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's tough. Um, so uh, the kind of obvious solution for us was we can't uh, raise venture to, to kind of grow it and, and get big enough, quick enough. Um, so uh, selling and exploring options was the option we chose. Got it. What did you do next? How did you proceed from that decision? So, so step zero there was well, some people who have, and the advice we got over and over, hire an investment banker. Uh, there were people that said, no, you can do it yourself. And didn't really understand this at the time. And probably if I were a CEO, I would have said, ah, let's just do it ourselves. Uh, but I'm, I'm so glad we hired an investment banker. We took some 
some recommendations. I think we talked to three or four firms, had them uh, come in and talk to us about their process. And there was kind of one clear uh, winner that had sold companies like ours before. Um, they sold uh, based on here's the revenue multiple we get. So a lot of the conversations are around re forward uh, looking revenue multiples and they kind of sold us on, we can get you a higher revenue multiple with our process. And uh, I think that was a, it was a good thing to sell on. I think uh, overall very happy with that choice. How did you go about identifying the short list of M&A advisors to, to, to speak with? So we had a, uh, had a board and we asked them and then we asked them to ask other people, probably uh, 10, 15 folks that we knew that had sold before, asked them which banker they used. Got it. And so you're talking to the M&A guys and they're all talking multiples of revenue, which is what they were viewing your business to be worth, which is pretty common in the software as a service world. Yep. Got it. And, and so what was the range you were hearing from the various bankers, like kind of low end, high end as a multiple of revenue? What, what were the sort of numbers they were throwing out? Uh, three to 12 and 12 is, this is a strategic buyer. They have a strategic use for you and your product portfolio. And three would be one of the lower end. You're kind of like getting valued, like you're a spreadsheet. You're just a, you know, discounted future cash flow. And the more you can, uh, the more you can position yourself as something strategic, that's going to be, you know, uh, synergistic, uh, the, the most overused world in word in business. Uh, if you can be synergistic with their existing product portfolio or bring them into a market, uh, then you get higher uh, revenue multiple. Oh, so really they're saying three, the, got it. So they're the saying three to 12. What was the straw that broke camel's back? Like, why did you choose the M and a firm that you did? It was there one or two reasons that you chose them. I think it's, it's so hard to choose. They all kind of look the same. They have the same pricing structure. They're all very convincing or they wouldn't probably be in business. So mm. for us, it was, uh, it was recommendations. We, we asked and, and had, I think two or three really positive recommendations, everything else checked out. Um, I think, you know, we, I could, we could justify it as something we saw in them, but I think really it, it was the, it was the recommendations from other people they worked with. Got it. So you hired this M&A firm. What's next? What's, what's next up in the process? So I didn't understand this at the time, uh, but one of the values of the M&A firms is they can go out. They, they built a list for us. They built here, all the strategic acquirers here, are all the folks that just, you know, they're, they're PE and they buy firms at your size and they know mm -hmm. that list. Uh, I think there were 150 companies on that list, somewhere around there. And then they just ran a process and the ran a process is, uh, step zero again was, all right, we have the firm. Uh, then it is do your homework. So they had a list of here are the, like, it was, you know, a hundred items long on a spreadsheet. Here are the things that y'all need to get your house in order. We know that investors are going to ask for these hundred things. So write up your, you know, security and disaster recovery policy. Talk about your IP, uh, put all of your, uh, R&D uh, workers, intellectual property agreements here. Uh, look at your uh, sales efficiency. What's your customer acquisition costs? What's your CAC to lifetime value? Uh, and this, this part sucked. And uh, <laughs> in retros, I, I was pretty skeptical. And I was like, oh, why are we doing all this? Kind of be work and not running the business. Um, but that was maybe the most valuable process was getting hmm. all of our ducks in order. I think we actually learned some stuff about our business, uh, which was surprising to me, specifically around uh, sales efficiency and sales, uh, sales rep ramp time. 
Um, and what'd you learn? We learned that our sales ramp time was lower than what most people expected in the industry. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, kind of a, a thing I wish we would have learned earlier. Cause I think we could have put some energy towards it and improved mm -hmm. it. If we would have known that actually you, you, our ramp time is 18 months. Uh, if we get up to 12 months, that would make a big difference for our business. And, and when you're referring to ramp time, you're referring to how long it takes a salesperson to hit budget or hit quota, essentially. That's right. And it was 18 months with your experience. I think we were somewhere around there. And I think, uh, I think 12 months is, uh, is closer to normal. And I think we, I think we really put a ton of effort into it. Um, at least I, I didn't help much. And I think there's work from the product and engineering side, which where I was, uh, I could have done things to help. And I, you know, wish I, uh, wish I would have known that cause I think I could have helped. Hmm. Interesting. So you, you, you developed a, what we call the pre-diligence package, which you know, different folks call it different things, but basically a, a bunch of stuff that everybody's going to ask about. You got to get done in advance. Yep. What was the next step that you had this 150 long lists? Did, did they go out with a, a teaser of some sort? Like give me the, give me the next step in the process. Yep. That's it. They, they ran it with a teaser, uh, one pager. If you want more information, reply, and then they would provide access to a, a data room that had, you know, the, the top 10% high level uh, things. It was a sales funnel, right? We have, we sent out this many, we got this many responses. Uh, I want to say that was somewhere around 10%. We're like, you know, send us the next step. And at so this 150, point, you got 15 sort of in, in the hopper. I think, I think somewhere around there. Um, and at this point they didn't know who we were. So one of the nice things about an investment banker is you are, you can reach out to, you can reach out and explore uh, the market without uh, like tipping off competitors and everyone else mm -hmm. here on the, on the hunt. Um, so they would say, let's see a little bit more. And then they would sign in the NDA after that. Um, and I think we got from, let's say, you know, 150 to 15 to, uh, I would say seven or eight that kind of went into that that kind of more final stage. And what are you thinking at this stage? So what's your, your internal dialogue in your head with your partner, with your investors, when you're getting from, you know, 15 people interested in learning a little bit more, seven of them sign the NDA, like what, what, what are you saying amongst yourselves? How do you think it's going at this point? we're asking a lot of questions. Like uh, we're saying, you know, how, how is this going? Is this normal? Like, uh, I think that's a question we asked over and over. Is this normal? So having an investment banker to say like, yep, this is pretty normal or exercise is a little better than normal. Uh, so the feedback we got is, is a little better than normal, but pretty much in the, in the range of what we would expect. Mm -hmm. So we're feeling, you know, vaguely, vaguely good. Also stressed about, doing this process while running the business. That was another constant concern is like, how do I balance doing this thing uh, versus actually operating the business? How mm -hmm. do I, I'm making these requests for like, uh, I, I did a software license audit and uh, to the rest of my team, it's like, what the heck is Wes doing auditing our software? Like, like why? Can we focus on what we're doing here instead of some yeah, software audit. Wes just wake up on one side of the bed and is like, yeah. oh, software licenses. That sounds Ooh. fun. <laughs> so that was a, that was a tension I had where otherwise a pretty transparent or, and, and I didn't I underestimated the stress for me of going totally transparent to like, I'm doing this thing and I can't really explain why. And I know it feels goofy. That was, that was pretty rough. I don't know how to get around it, but I, I was not expecting it. 
I've heard it compared to sort of like a cheating spouse, the idea that you're kind of like, you've got this huge secret and you, you don't tell your spouse, you, you're walking around the house and you feel all guilty all the time. But I've heard it compared to that, um, that sense of, of that duplicity, I guess, would be one way to describe it. That feels right. It's, yeah. it, it does not feel uh, like you're holding up your end of, of, of kind of your contract with the rest of your team. Yeah. How did you reconcile that in your head? Uh, so I had folks tell me lots of stories. I actually pushed back on this uh, pretty hard. I know there are, I've, I've seen read examples of uh, uh, companies that will share it internally, uh, but it, it's risky because if it, if, if it comes up, uh, it can kill a deal. It can also get you sued. So uh, I was, uh, I was convinced that that would be a really bad outcome and not worth the cost. The other cost that uh, was brought up is, uh, if you share uncertainty with someone else and they're just fixated on that uncertainty, maybe they do a worse job. Uh, and actually if, if you give someone information that they can't take any action on, right? It's like, what mm. can you do? Just do, you know, do, do your best, uh, look for, look for efficiencies, serve the customer. You know, the, the thing you do is, is the same, whether you know that information or not. So then there's an argument for that, but, uh, you know, that cheating spouse probably can make the same argument. So I'm a little, mm. uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel good, but I, I think it was an okay decision. After the sale, how did you, we're going to get into the actual way you communicated it, but did you, did you ever, how did those relationships sort of survive the sale? Did they survive the sale? And, and how did you sort of patch them up or attempt to patch them up after the sale? They, I, I, it was, I think we built up enough trust, uh, that they trusted that this is the way it had to be. So I didn't get a lot of pushback. Um, I think there was a lot of surprise. And one of the things I, I think I would have done differently is we positioned this as like, this is the right thing for a company and a customer. And I, and I think it was, um, we, I think I would have done is positioned it as we, they, they bought us because they like our team and they like our product and they think we can figure out how to, how to serve customers better and innovate. Uh, what I actually positioned it is they have a plan for us and that felt very certain, but the reality is our acquirer, you know, was trying to figure out the plan, right? If they would have come in with like, this is what we're doing. It probably wasn't a bad decision. Uh, and that's kind of, I over, overpromised on the certainty of the plan versus talking to my team and saying, we need input. We need to figure this out. I want you to learn uh, about this other company, about uh, where you think we can work better together. And then let's, let's build a plan together. And I think that would have been a, a, a better way to frame this and actually a more realistic, more reality uh, congruent way of framing the, the situation. Yeah. It's, it's such an important point. You know, a lot of, a lot of employees feel like their job's in jeopardy. They're going to lose their job the moment they get in. And in many cases, they're actually way more uh, employable, have way more leverage right at the point of an acquisition because the acquirer wants to monetize what they've acquired. Right. And especially for like folks in kind of middle management ish, or maybe their team leads. Mm. So in our situation, most of the executive team was out. Uh, so that creates a lot of opportunity internally. So I think sure. we could have positioned more like this is going to create opportunity for you to advance more quickly in your career than you would have otherwise. You're going to get more leadership opportunities. Um, this is an opportunity to step up and, and kind of grow your career quickly. 
Yeah, for sure. So let's get back to the deal itself. You've got seven, um, seven folks who are sort of on the line. You got the hook in the, in the mouth, so to speak. What, what was the next step? Did, did they start to provide offers or letters of intent of some sort? We did kind of dog and pony show pitches. Uh, we mostly brought people in to see us. Uh, we mm. went to see a couple people, um, flew in their management team. It was typically like two to four folks. We would how did you do that on the sly, on the quiet? Like how did you sort of invite them into the office without people kind of guessing who they were? Our law firm uh, gave us space. So we went offsite which is like, you know, pretty shady. We had to be careful about calendar settings. Uh, we had to be careful about what we named meetings. We had to actually change our default Google doc settings as a result of this. So if you're, if you're an employee and you see a default Google doc settings change, uh, be skeptical. That's it. <laughs> Love it. Okay. So you meet with the lawyers, the lawyers offices, whatever. Um, how many letters of intent did you ultimately get? Uh, we got more than one, I, I can say. So we had, we had options, which is really the goal of the investment banker is to give you options. Like the only leverage, like you, you know, you could say, well, this is the revenue, this is the market rate. And if you have one option, they could say, sure, go get the market rate. So the market rate is always what options do you personally have? What LOIs do you have? So we, we had, uh, we we're fortunate to have multiple LOIs. What was the range, if you can give me a sense of, of sort of multiples of revenue? You thought it was sort of three to 12. What did you end up getting? I think we got uh, three and a half to four and a half, I think is where we were, somewhere around there. Um, the challenge is uh, the offers, there were earnouts. Uh, there were lots of different characters. There are different ways of structuring the deal mm -hmm. so that some of them seemed like higher numbers, but you had to hit other numbers to get there. Uh, it was actually pretty tough to apples compare deals. You had to go, we at least had to look at what forecast can we think is reasonable? Uh, what, uh, what extra money are they going to put in the business to make this new forecast reasonable? So it was, it was very challenging to compare uh, deals. I think going in with a strong expectation of what we could do over the next 18 months by default uh, really helped us evaluate those deals. What proportion of the deal were they putting at risk in some sort of earnout? Uh, it, it varied. Let's say, like on the low end, it was like single, low single digit percentages, a few percent. On the high end, it was ten uh, ish, ten to fifteen percent of the deal, if I recall. So, so at the end of the day, still eighty-five to ninety percent of the the deal would have been cash at closing. Yep. Got it. Um, what other considerations did you look at in evaluating the LOI? So you obviously had the, the sale price or whatever they're you know, willing to spend, um, the proportion that would be at risk in an earnout. What else, what else did you use to compare and contrast the offers? Which is going to be better for our, our team and our customers. So culture was really important. And this is that uh, word that everyone knows is important, but to define. Uh, so we spent a lot of time, uh, trying to meet as many people as we could at both teams and get to know how they worked. How did so you we, evaluate culture? We asked for some heuristics. Um, so what's a heuristic? Called, so like uh, a rule of thumb. So uh, our heuristics were our rule of thumbs were around what is our company policy uh, around PTO uh, time off and work from home and uh, kind of a silly one, but what did they dress like? Uh, what did these people come to the meetings? You know, did mm -hmm. they, 
that look like a baker. Yeah. yeah. So that was, that was a, a reasonable one. Uh, we're able to, you know, how did they interact with us via, via email? Is this kind of very formal emails or did I get LinkedIn messages, you know, telling me something was, was, was cool about our product. Um, so it, it's, it's such a fuzzy process, but we're trying to uh, mostly evaluate policy and then kind of what the, the face-to-face and digital interaction was about. And this, this was really, we, we debated, we went back and forth. It was, it was tough. You debated internally, mm-hmm. you and who your partner and other investors or just you and your partner in the business. So we had uh, four folks on the management team and mm-hmm. kind of all had different opinions. Uh, and then ultimately also had to take that to the board. It's like, this is the, this is the offer we think we should take. The board was ultimately really supportive. They asked questions. Uh, it was really uh, felt like a management team decision. So there's culture fit. There's obviously sale price. There's proportionate risk in an earnout. What else? Was there a fourth dimension that you looked at? Uh, we looked a little bit about uh, what we thought this would be for our customers. So product synergies. So we had a mix of uh, kind of strategic, there's some product synergy and just kind of money um, mm-hmm. investors. And for the investors, there's, they were just kind of money. It was uh, how much more money do they want to put into the product? And for strategics, it was how do we feel like these two products could fit together and, and make our customers better. So which deal did you go for? Uh, we, so we, we first, we went to a different deal. So we, mm-hmm. we were excited. We, we went through it. We were like, these, these are the folks, uh, we, we saw some uh, product opportunities where we would be better. Our customers would be better served by having both of the products. I went to visit their office. We're really excited. Um, I toured their office, talked about, I had like one-on-one time with the product engineering team, got really technical. And then when it came time to uh, negotiate the earnouts, uh, things got the tone changed. So they brought someone in to help with the negotiations, and it got very, uh, very adversarial very quickly. Um, the people that we talked to, we had good feels about, kind of stepped back, and then it felt like we were real zero sum. And uh, and luckily, we we signed a a, a limit. Uh, uh, a limit on how much uh, the exclus- exclusivity period. We had a limited number of days. We hit that and we weren't feeling good. Uh, and they asked us to resign and we said, uh, we're not sure. Um, and then we, we had another offer uh, come in. It, it got so many questions. Let me just, let me just pause and make sure everybody's following. So when you sign a letter of intent, it usually has a no shop clause or an exclusivity clause. It sounds like yours did in this case. Yours was likely 60 days. Was it, do you recall? Ish. I, think, I think it was 45 or 30. 45. Okay. So that's a period with which you can't negotiate with the other people. You're exclusively kind of engaged to this, this one firm. They're talking to you about, um, you know, the, the product fit and feel things are, you know, going along well. Was the earnout not stipulated then in the letter of intent? Why was that sort of a point of negotiation in, in diligence? It was not. It was. Uh, it was the amount. The amount of earnout earnout was stipulated, but the terms, meaning the percentage. The percentage. Yeah, the okay. percentage of the total uh, was stipulated. The terms that it would be that uh, would actually be achieved were not stipulated, and uh, management employment agreements were also, you know, 
I can't remember the language, but it was like reasonable employment agreements. So those are the two things that, uh, you know, definitions of reasonable uh, vary, let's say. Yeah, that's a subjective word, reasonable. Your reasonable may not be the same as mine. Okay, so you're into the, into the thick of the negotiation. What was the first tip, the tip off, the, the, the indicator that, that the earnout discussion was becoming more adversarial than the other discussions? It, it was, um, it was, it became, instead of this, let's, let's talk together what, about what's the right plan and, and where we're going to go. It was, here's, uh, here, here's what we think you need to be able to do. So I felt it went from, uh, let's talk about it and collaborate and find, find the right solution to here's the thing. What do you think? Like went, it went very top down, uh, which was a surprise to us. And what was your reaction to it? Uh, at first we thought it was kind of uh, weird. We reached out back to the, so this was a new person brought in to negotiate this, uh, which, and I can see why they did that. You know, you, it's negotiation tactic is have good, good cop, bad cop. You want to, they were the bad cop. It's okay to have a bad cop. But when we reached out to, you know, our good cop, they were kind of like, you know, that's, you know, talk, talk to them. Uh, and that, that didn't feel, uh, didn't feel right. It felt like we you know, you got to hit these numbers. Um, and, you know, we had some questions like what kind of investment we're going to make. These numbers are bigger than the numbers we were showing you whenever you made the offer. Uh, how are you going to help us get there? And it's like, nope, we got to hit these kind of higher numbers. And uh, that's, that's not, that's not anything. The good cop in this situation with the product people and the bad cop are the finance people. Am I getting that basically right? It was kind of the good cop is the management team of the company. The bad cop is uh, f- folks that, uh, uh, finance people. Yep. Okay. So the finance guys are saying, here's the, here's the year now, take it or leave it. You're like, well, <laughs> need, need more information. When you pushed for what's the budget you're applying against this to help us achieve this number, what resources do we have access to? What was their reaction? It was, uh, uh, it's the budget we determine. We haven't determined it, but it'll be the budget that makes the sense for the company. So kind of like no commitment sort of thing, which, I can see why they might say that, right? They don't want to get locked down, uh, committed to something. We also didn't want to be committed to something without, uh, in, in a world where they might pull budget. Uh, that, so that felt very, I, I think the reality is with the earnout, you're never going to an ironclad contract that like defines what everyone wants to do. So I think as soon as that direction, uh, they kind of showed a lack of trust. And once that trust was gone, it became a thing where we were only going to do it. I think if we, we stopped having other options, um, so but, that trust was, but it's at the end of the day, it's still a fairly small percentage of the deal, right? It is. Yeah. I think Why not just like fake it and say, screw it. Yeah. We'll do your earn out and then leave the day after you get the money. I think that was, uh, that was a thing uh, we talked about is like, what would it look like if we just did this deal and, and just, just assume that we're not actually going to get the earn out. Mm-hmm. So we did that evaluation probably probably wouldn't have been, you know, screw it. Uh, but it would have been, let's assume this doesn't actually happen and then we analyze it. And then we start to think, actually, maybe this is not, uh, not the right deal for us. But why not? Like what was the calculus that, that allowed you to come to that conclusion? Because bird in the hands worth two in the bush, like, you know, you're, you're kind of in the, into the throes of this negotiation. Who knows if the other guys are going to bite again? Cause the, the, the risk of course 
is if you go back out to the market after the 45 days expires, everybody's going to go, hmm, I wonder what they found in diligence that, you know, the other guys found. And their, their sort of antenna for diligence goes up like a hundredfold. <laughs> well, Absolutely. So burden hands what's doing with which, why not just take the money? It's 90% of what, you know, 90, 90, well, like it's a high percentage of the deals up front. Take me through your headspace there. What, why not take the money and just do the this, deal? Th- this was the point where uh, my CEO was uh, Fitbit and sleeping four hours a night. Uh, he lost, I think almost 15 pounds and he's like a, a fit guy. Uh, so this is like, not, you know, this is like stress weight. So this is the, probably the darkest hour is, you know, we have a thing that we're not feeling good about. Um, and we don't really feel like we have a lot of options. Cause like, exactly like you said, we go back to the, the back to the market, maybe those deals are gone. Um, and it came down to, it, it probably wasn't a fully rational spreadsheet decision. It was, we built this thing. It's our baby. Is this, is this the kind of relationship we want to start in? And I, I can't tell you it was obviously the right decision. I know it worked out for us, but it could have been the wrong decision. There's like a, there's another parallel universe where things fall through. We've done all this work. We've gotten our hopes up. Uh, and I've, I've heard those stories. This is a big deal. Obviously you're talking three, four and a half times revenue. What's the, how, how life-changing is it for all of the shareholders, for yourself, for your, your, your other shareholders? I mean, is this going to be enough money for them to live for the rest of their lives? Like, why was it so stressful that he lost 15 pounds over this earn out discussion? Uh, so our, our CEO is one of the most conscious people I know really cares about, uh, these people that gave, gave money uh, to go do this thing. And he thought a lot about the downside and, and wanting to get their money back. I think if they're, uh, it's just a personal lot about that thing. I think that's, it's, it's a real emotional caring. I don't think, you know, it's not, nobody put in all their life savings. Nobody is going to get, you know, a few money as, as people call it out of this deal. Uh, but it, it, he cares a lot about, his reputation and his impact. So uh, I think that was, uh, I think it's a, a reflection of his character, not of any kind of absolute uh, scope. What about for you personally though? I mean, um, you, you, you were a shareholder in this company. Um, where were you at on the, let's just take the money and do the deal versus let's go back out to the market. Where were you at personally? I cared a lot about the product and our customers. Like that was the thing that motivated me a lot personally is who's going to be the right place for this product that I've spent the last 10 years building. And I but, didn't, but you thought these guys were great, right? Like in the beginning, you thought these guys were great for the product. There's a fit. You, you were in bed with the engineers and so forth. So did that change or were you still feeling that if we could get past these finance guys, the, the product is best suited with these, with this firm it did change. Um, so when we try to reach out to the good cop folks and they tell us, you know, you got to talk to the bad cop, uh, it just felt like that. I, the trust wasn't there. And I I don't think it was unreasonable. I don't think they did bad things. It wasn't unethical, but it, it it reflected on what the relationship was going to be like going forward. And that, that didn't, didn't feel good. I think there's, uh, it's surprising how much feels kind of get caught up in this thing. Mm -hmm. 
the thing I've spent 10 years building and I've talked to hundreds of people and I, I, I think, you know, I want to write, I want a good home for it. And for me, talk- I, wanted, I wanted the, 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 the money and the flexibility so that I could go start my own thing. But ah, honestly, that was weighing less than the, I want a good product at home for our customers and team. You built this thing. You want to see it. What are the M&A guys doing? Because we talked earlier about, you know, benefits of having M&A. You were a bit skeptical about M&A guys, but then, you know, you, you, come, you came around to how much value they add. I got to believe at this late stage on the earn out conversation, they're pressuring you to take the deal. Yeah. Uh, I think to their credit, uh, all of their incentives are to, to take the deal. Uh, they, they really don't benefit by us dragging their feet to find the right home. But I, I didn't feel a lot of pressure. I think they made it clear that the risks of, of pushing off here were that we'd go back and exactly as you said, things would go, go south. The diligence alarms would, would you know, increase for everyone else. So they told us they didn't sugarcoat it. Uh, they, just, they just made us aware. Uh, and when it came time that the exclusivity period, the no shop agreement ended, uh, they asked us what we wanted to do. Um, and they actually, they actually said, it seems like you're not feeling good. It would be reasonable to not, not renew this. So I think giving us that permission, um, was a, was a fairly high, it's a high integrity move for them. Yeah. It sounds like, what did the other side do when you said, no, we're not renewing the, the no shop clause? Uh, I think they were a little, seemed a little surprised. I think they were, you know, a little miffed. They put in a lot of time. I think they were, they were pretty reasonable. They were, uh, you know, let's, let's do it for 15 more days. Um, and then it was kind of a like, well, you know, take it or leave it. You left it. And then kind of radio silence for a while. You lost me there. So your the original period was 45 days. You did extend for 15 additional days. Is that correct? Uh, they, they said, Hey, can we extend this for 30 days? And then I was like, what? we were like, Nope. What about 15 days? Nope. Uh, and then it was, okay, uh, this, is our, this is our best offer. So they did not attempt to retrade or, or renegotiate. They didn't attempt to woo you back in. They just kind of said, okay. Uh, not, as far as I know, that, that's true. Got it. So what, what next? I mean, <laughs> you had, I guess, seven folks kind of on the line, a couple of letters or a few, you know, handful of letters in tent. What was the next step in the process? So at this point we hadn't talked to any of those LOI folks in over 45 days. Cause that's the agreement is like, we're not going to communicate at all. Uh, and so then it's like, all right, we got to reach back out and see what's still out there. Um, I don't actually remember what happened with all of the other folks, but I know that we got a new offer. So one of the original, let's say 150 to reach out to was like, Hey, is this still around? Um, and, uh, we were, we were, we were talking, Oh, okay. Here's, here's the story is we were considering re-upping and going back in negotiation with the, uh, the original offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this new one came in and we're like, can you make a decision uh, quickly? Uh, what about, I think it was like nine days, eight days. When you maybe? say, can you, this is the second, the new offer you, you push yep. them saying, can you make a decision quickly? Yep. New offer. Can you make a decision quickly? And they were like, yep, we can do it. Uh, and we were like, you can make a decision in nine days. And they did it. They ran through diligence. We, they went through all of our materials, talked to our exec team and made this decision that we'd been working on in 45 days. And they, 
they had it done in you know seven i think i think they maybe missed the day by one uh i think it was like 10 days instead of nine but that's stunning got it done so (laughs) that's just that's mind-blowing so you went from letter of intent with this new offer to close deal in literally 10 days I, th- I think, yeah, it was, it was less than two weeks. It was wow. super fast. What was your reaction to the letter of intent? Uh, I, I remember just being, I think at first I was skeptical. Like there's no way we can get this done so quickly. Uh, this seems like I'm worried that I'm going to waste more time. Is this, is this going to go away? Um, Where were they on some of the key metrics like value? You were sort of in the three and a half to four and a half range before similar kind of space. Yeah. Similar range, you know, less, less earn out, more guaranteed. Uh, Yeah. Ended up being similar. I think they got a little bit better deal than the other person uh, would have gotten to their their credit for moving so fast, Mm -hmm. Um, but ended up being uh, multiple that we were all pretty happy with. Got it. So the overall value was slightly less than the first offer, um, but more of it upfront. Yeah. I think it depends on how, how, uh, what's your opinion of whether that or not would actually happen. I think that was right. kind of the, the margin. Yeah. Okay. The cash at closing was comparable then. Yeah. Very ish. close. Yeah. 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 It's weird when, you know, I, I reflect back on your original kind of conversations with M&A guys and they said, you know, it's somewhere between three and 12. And then all the offers you received were kind of in that three and a half to four and a half range. Do you find that peculiar? Like, do you think there was something like, were they, was there some back channel communication going on that sort of suggested that this was the range you guys were willing to accept? I I think looking back that 12 X is that's like the best, that's probably the best multiple. Crazy. Yeah. 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 That's, that's the one. And that now goes on every one of their PowerPoint presentations. Okay. At one time, they got a 12, uh, 12X multiple. Yeah. And so your, your sense was that the lower end of the range was really the realistic range of what the business was worth. I think that's right. I think if we, if we were growing faster, I think we could have, could have got a higher multiple. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's other factors that could have moved us north, but, uh, you know, you, they'll dangle that, uh, whatever the best case they've ever seen in front of you in yeah, yeah. slide. But I think it's, it's not, it's not real. Uh, I think the Pacific crest survey, I think is real, or I think the name of that change, it used to be called Pacific crest is like SAS multiple private valuations. Um, and it kind of goes through what are the, what are the factors that are going to determine valuations. And at the time we, I went, went through that process with our numbers and yeah, we're three and a half to four. So Pretty interesting. interesting. Evaluation. Yeah. Why was the second firm so fast in doing their due diligence? They, uh, they had a very centralized decision process. It was really um, one person with a little bit of input. So I think he was able to use as an advantage. I think that's Famously, Warren Buffett uh, can make a deal in a day because it's his decision. He can do it on the back of napkin. I think he was kind of channeling some of that energy of, you know, I'm, I can I can make this decision. I don't have to go out and get a lot of approval. Uh, and that, that ended up being an advantage for him. Mm-hmm. What was that closing day like for you? Can you describe that experience of 10 days after accepting the LOI actually closing on the deal? 
what, what I really remember is the day that we announced it to the team. So we get everyone in the conference room, Steve, our CEO stands up and, uh, you know, no one really knows what's going on. Uh, everyone's just kind of like, you know, chit chatting and like, I hear some, you know, more nervous energy than I would expect in that meeting. Cause I think people have some ideas, something else is going on, especially yep. folks that have been through it before. Like I, how many employees at this time? About 50. Um, yeah. I think we probably had 35 people in the room. Um, it's just energy and he stands up and um, shares the news and breaks down in tears is, is really thankful. Uh, and I think that just everyone connected over like what we've done over the last 10 years. Uh, I think it went, you know, there's that cycle of emotion first it's, you know, surprise. And I think you could see with him standing up there, how much he cared about the team and the company. And I, I think clear that when he made he wasn't just looking by us multiple, he was looking for the right place, the best of the, the best he could find. Um, that's something that's really stuck with me is that's the kind of leader I want to be. I want to be um, someone that I, I trust to make that holistic decision. Um, and I, I think he did a, a really good job uh, balancing all the stakeholders. How involved were the investors, both the friends and family, as well as the, uh, the kind of more formalized, uh, I, I don't know if you call it a series A, but it's kind of the more, more formalized institutional investors. How, how, how involved were they in your decision-making around walking away from the first offer and consummating with the second deal? So our board was informed. So they knew and they were given advice and, uh, to, to, to their credit, it was very much like, uh, CEO supportive. It's like, we got you. This happens. We know it happens. Uh, a huge percentage of these first offers don't actually work out. We expected it. It's fine. Um, you're you're going to get to a good outcome. So they're they're supportive. They also ask questions. You know what 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 other options do we have? What, what do we expect now? Um, and then the rest of the group. There are a couple of investors that are, you know have closer relationships. Uh, mm -hmm. So it was interesting how some of those were like. Uh, texting Steve at 2 a.m. to know what's happened in the deal. So he was getting uh, lots of attention from a minority of folks who were just really close. Uh, to, to because the they wanted their money or? Uh, you know, I'm sure their motivations are mixed, but they were very interested in, 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 that, uh, in that money. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's fair to say. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Did you buy yourself a trophy? How did you celebrate this win? I, I founded, uh, I founded a company. I didn't spend a dime extra. I put it in a savings account. And one of the weird things as I was really realizing about a year ago, I have no, I have one physical artifact from my, my time at policy stat. I've well, a couple t-shirts and then I have our investment banker bought us this kind of nice little plaque thing that I have in my office. And that's it. I spent 10 years. Can you show life. it to me? Do you have it like in front of you? Yeah. For those of you who are listening on iTunes, um, we're on YouTube and uh, Wes is going to hold up on YouTube his uh, trophy from his investment bankers. Oh, cool. That's it's like, uh, it's, it's basically like a, a tombstone of the deal um, showing policy stats sold to eye contracts. That's fantastic. Congratulations. That's cool. Yeah, it's, it's kind of uh, crazy how unphysical uh, it is, but that's, uh, the, the money from that gave me enough personal runway that I didn't need to take a salary from the first 18 months of founding my new startup woven. Um, 
and also allowed me to put a little bit of money to, to run the company. Um, so that was, what's the new startup do? So we help companies hire better fit developers faster. Uh, we do that by gyms, resumes suck. You miss folks, especially developers. A third of our customers hires are people that they would have screened out at the resume phase. We give those folks a shot to actually do the job a little bit. We evaluate it. We handle all that. And we say, actually, these two people, you should talk to them. They're way better than the resume. And then our customers, as a result, hire faster. They use fewer headhunters. They save engineering time, all that. That's uh, awesome. And where can people find out about Woven? Uh, Woventeams.com. Uh, woven is spelled W O V E N. You got it. Like woven wool. What's the, what's the backstory on the, uh, on the name? So I think uh, if you've ever worked on a great team, it feels like, um, it feels it's this, it's this organism that's to, together, right? You, you mm. know, strengths and other person's weaknesses line up and you, you kind of mesh and you kind of know what other people are going to do. And I think great software teams are, are built that way. So other people's nice. weaknesses line up. There are lots of tools and ideas out there. That's like, you know, did you go to this school or, you know, can you do this algorithm? But great teams are about communication and collaboration and problem solving. So our focus is on those aspects of being a software developer, you know, coding too, but you know, Coding is, there's lots of people that can code. There's not a lot of great uh, development teams out there. And we'll put that in the show notes at builttocell.com, but it's, it's woven team or woven teams. Woven teams. Woven teams.com. And Wes, are you, are you, uh, are you a social media guy? Are you okay? Are people uh, connect with you on LinkedIn or what's, what's the best sort of social channel? Yeah. If you send me a LinkedIn message, uh, if you send me a LinkedIn request, put a message mentioning the podcast. I get, you know, a lot of attention uh, and tweet me. I'm, I'm on t- pretty active on Twitter. That's probably the best place to. What's your handle on Twitter? It is Wes Winham. And that is W-E-S-W-I-N-H-A-M. It's like Wes Winham. And same, I assume, on LinkedIn as well. That's it. Wes, it's been great. Thank you so much for sharing your story in such great, in great detail. I appreciate it. This was fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.